Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, both and neither, to the Lair of the Blood Freak. I am the titular Blood Freak, not to be confused with Castle Freak, my least favorite Stuart Gordon movie. <laughs> but my friends just call me Molly. Uh, I'm joined, as usual, by my esteemed co-host and fellow horror aficionado, Justin. Hello! This is a horror podcast focusing on analyzing the different subgenres and tropes in horror, and today we're going to bust through our sophomore slump and discuss found footage. Oh boy, here we go. Alright, first things first, I don't like this genre as a whole, but that's one of the reasons I wanted to address it. Uh, we want to show that you can find good or at least decent movies even in genres that you don't necessarily like. I want to start start by talking a little bit about what defines found footage as a genre, since it's a little fuzzier than a concept than werewolves. For our purposes, I will be defining found footage as movies where at least the vast majority of the film is itself treated as an in-universe object. So we aren't just talking about POV movies or movies where tapes feature prominently, like The Ring. Although I guess that's at the fuzzier edge, but I'm going to call it no. Mm-hmm. Well, that- certainly with The Ring, like something like that is a situation where... While the object of the tape itself plays a significant role, the actual footage of the tape, the literal found footage of the tape, does it? I mean, it, it's it's what a seven minute, and we at don't, most, and yeah, we don't even see all of, see it. Most of it. And you know, and it it, it it shows up a couple of times throughout the film, but it's not a large portion of the film. The rest of the film, at least. Certainly in the American version, but also in Ringu, the, with the original, that, you know, when it's not the the grainy, you know, death tape, mm-hmm. that it's a polished, a polished production, and, you know, it looks like a, visually it looks like a, like a regular movie. Yeah, it doesn't look like a found footage film. Although I am making a distinction between POV horror and found footage. I don't think you can really talk about found footage without addressing point-of-view horror. The idea of putting you into the killer's eyes is something that isn't anything new, sort of. As far as I'm concerned, the real early pioneer of this that most people will be familiar with is Psycho. I'm assuming that anyone who's listening to a horror podcast will be familiar with Psycho, so I don't want to belabor it too much. But, you know, sort of that iconic shower scene is one of the most identifiable scenes in horror. Sure. Sure, absolutely. Psycho isn't exactly on point for where we're talking about. I think the more relevant one is uh, the 1960 film Peeping Tom, which a lot mm. of people are much less familiar with as a whole. Yeah, um, it takes a POV approach for kills, but it's through the serial. It's literally through the serial killer's camera. Like he atta- actually has he, a camera. Walking he kills around. people with a knife attached to the camera. That's a premise. Yeah. It's it's a very small part of the actual shots in the movie, so I wouldn't consider it a found footage movie, but there's a lot of, like, there's a clear precursor line there that I think needs to be considered. There, there's unique feel when you put yourself in the point of view of a character, but especially the killer. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's immersion, but also it makes you feel uncomfortable. And there's, oh, yeah. there's a, a power in filmmaking that has the ability to make you feel something, especially mm-hmm. to feel a little wrong or dirty like that. So as far as I'm, my knowledge, I could be wrong, but the the first pure example of a found footage film is probably 1980's Cannibal Holocaust. God, was that 1980? Yes. Uh, directed by Ruggiero Degato. It takes the form of a mission to rescue a film crew. The discovery of the tapes they filmed are viewed in the movie, mm. but also just full screen we don't see people just watching them it is the movie itself 
and well, they kind are, of. Yeah, there's a lot. There, there, there are the scenes where like they've got like the the three of them, like the producers and the director, are sitting like in the theater doing. But the vast majority of the runtime is yeah, those yeah, tapes. Yeah, and even then, we're only watching them watching it. Like we're not even seeing it from like a third person perspective. Yeah. Like over the shoulder, like oh. we we're watching their faces to see their reactions, which was a very. It was a very, very useful and very, very effective tactic seeing the looks on their faces while trying while trying to yeah, get through this. It, it, is, it is a film that can make you feel things. <laughs> Cannibal Holocaust, it caused a huge uproar when it was initially released. There were obscenity charges that were levied, and there was a, a small push by some isolated facts to have the filmmakers charged with the disappearance of the actors, because some actually considered it a, a snuff film, though that's... It's not totally apocryphal, but it's overblown. Well, there was the, the primarily because I remember there the director was also charged in um, God. Where was it? Australia. Some some place was actually like they they actually they actually charged them and convicted them of animal cruelty. Yeah, and and I think it, that's that's one thing I want to know. I don't like Cannibal Holocaust as a movie for a variety of reasons, and I I couldn't in good conscience recommend seeing it. To, to someone who wasn't specifically interested because, you know, there's there's the animal cruelty issue because they, they did kill a couple of animals in the filming. Yeah. But also, you know, it, it's not that quality of a film. I, I think it, it, from a production standpoint, there are some things that could be said positive about it, yeah. but it's, it's not one that hits me as anything I, I like. And it's worth noting, the whole Italian cannibal subgenre pretty fucking racist yo yeah super i like there there's a reason i had to go and get whiskey to do to deal with <laughs> to talk about cannibal holocaust molly yeah no that's the thing is like it does it is very much in that kind of that let's like, say that that italian cannibal cannibal genre that is it, it, it is very much the idea of I mean, the whole premise of the film itself were these privileged white filmmakers going in deep into the Amazon to find the, the the primitive savage tribesmen for even for even for looking at you know 1980 and think even you know looking at a lot of a lot of, a lot of those films you know throughout the 70s mm-hmm. and whatnot these were these were concepts that were that were fairly common in the 1880s <laughs> like what well, you, you would think it's it's surprising i mean granted you know we look around at the world around us and we see that you know racism is absolutely alive and well but it, it's it's still just kind of mind-blowing to think that even after after all this time that these things are still so ingrained yeah and i mean it, it i would love to say that we've gotten better but like the green inferno came out a couple years ago and it's basically just a love letter to these films, and not really any less racist. I had forgotten about the Green Inferno. Thanks for bringing that up. I'm okay. sorry, but again, I'm not. I couldn't recommend Cannibal Holocaust to anyone, and except as as an artifact of this touchstone in horror that exists, not for quality. But you can't talk about found footage without talking about Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, but fortunately, now that we've talked about Cannibal Holocaust, we don't we have move to on. talk about Cannibal, Hol- Cannibal Holocaust um, again. But the genre found footage really didn't take off until 1999's Blair Witch Project. Yeah. It was a cultural phenomenon that had a huge amount of buzz, and it was insanely popular for a low-budget horror film. On a budget of uh, 60000 estimated, it generated over $240 million. Yeah. That's a 400,000% profit. And that's 
pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kudos. Good yeah, on them. Um, well done. So that level of success pushed forward found footage genre as a whole. Studios realize they can make found footage for next to nothing because they don't need to worry about things like picture quality as much. Yeah. And you don't need to worry about hiding the camera from shots. And there's there's a lot of money saved in production mm-hmm. and found footage. And and here in like and I, I will say, you know, Molly already said it, I will say it too. Found the found footage genre is so far from my favorite horror genre. I, I've 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 never really been a huge fan of it. And I think Going through all of this, like, you know, prep for yeah. all of this and reading, you know, going through my movie that we'll get to later, I think I figured out why. Yeah. I think I, think I figured out why I do, don't like this genre. It's because it, it, it has a lot of potential to really create some interesting scares, to do some very interesting kind of commentary mm-hmm. and things like that. And some of them go part way and do some of that. The problem that I find is that. Because it is so cheap to make, they it's it's a license to be lazy. I think that's often the case, and I, I found footage as I said isn't it isn't a genre I like. But there's something to be said for the ability that it gives small productions, like new mm. filmmakers, small companies, to try to make horror films in a way that feels more legitimate. I, I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah. But I think you're right that it does encourage bigger studios or bigger production companies to sort of shunt to lazy filmmaking yeah. on the realization that even if you make a small profit, if you only spent this tiny percent of your yearly film production budget, if you can get a mediocre showing at the box office, sure. it turns a huge profit. Well, and there too, like there for a while, especially, you know, like after Blair Witch, we had, and after it exploded. There was this glut in the in the in the horror as a whole with all of these different found footage films. Again, going back and like trying to pick a particular film to review, I had it was shocking to me to see just how many of them were actually there. Yeah, there was a huge boom. There really was, and I think that especially at that point in time, like you definitely had not only with Blair Witch and with Paranormal Activity, which kind of revitalized the whole thing and kept and just kind of kept that zombie moving it, it with those big studios it, that was that was very much especially during that during that time period it was a way for them to go hey this is a way we can make a shitload of money let's just keep doing this let's keep doing this this exact same tired formula over and over again and that's that's why I say like it's lazy you know it's I, I think sometimes it is. You know, I don't. I don't want to get down on on filmmakers without being in the room because I think there is there's some love put in lo- into some of these projects, and I think that's that's what I look for in mm-hmm. a found footage movie to watch and to to potentially enjoy. Is I want something that's not just the same found footage movie. I don't want to watch the Blair Witch Project again. Right. I want something with a little different take. I want something that's got a good reason to have the uh, that's got a good reason to have the camera there. I want something that's funny or that's paced differently or does something interesting i want something that's going to make it stand out from the 800 found footage movies that came out in that decade yeah and and i think that is what led me to pick my pick for this week Mm. i'm gonna talk about 2014's unfriended before i i get into it i want to post a brief trigger warning this is going to deal with suicide and sexual assault so if those are issues for anybody listening may want to skip a little later 
I should also note that I am doing a review and summary from the R version on Amazon. I would have preferred an unrated one, but I could not get a hold of one. Mm -hmm. uh, it's my understanding that an unrated version exists, but I couldn't find it. gimmick found footage mm -hmm. in that it is all one computer screen mm -hmm. so the entire movie is what's shown on one computer screen and i think that's an interesting take mm -hmm. because it's it it work it's found footage that isn't just hey these people film this thing it's a recording of a desktop basically right, right. um and i think that's it, it's a different enough take that it sort of sparked my interest so, the movie opens with a warning page on a computer and someone clicking through onto a video of a woman with a gun who kills herself. We learn that her name was Laura, and then they go to a YouTube video called Laura Barnes Kill Yourself. And it's a video of that girl at a party, sort of clearly inebriated, and then that video is going to be a primary plot point as we go through the movie. But this time, at this point, it's interrupted by the unseen owner of the computer at this point um who is a character named blair getting a skype call from her boyfriend mitch they have a conversation that goes on a little while and it's super weird like he is brandishing a knife in like a sec like they treat it like it's a sexy thing and it's very awkward ew so then they're it's sort of partially undressed knife play call and like I don't want to sh I don't want to shame people's taste yeah no but it's weird watching it yeah so then anyway that is interrupted by a separate call by the characters Jess Adam and Kennington and an unseen fourth person Kennington Kennington it's labeled Kennington they just call him Ken for the rest of the movie but the Skype label is Kennington huh interesting choice okay <laughs> um, so. The call is answered, and they act like they sort of didn't mean to answer it. And then they get, like, there are some jokes cracked about the fact that they're partially undressed and being interrupted. And then they there are some messages exchanged. It's hard to summarize this movie because there are clean scene breaks. It's yeah. very fluid, but I'm doing my best. So then they start to comment on the fact that there's this fourth person who's just the blank, like, no-profile pic mm -hmm. Skype face that they talk about 
you know, who's this person? Does anybody know who this is? But and, and they're just silent. They're the not time. interacting. Okay. Yeah, just down in the corner. Who's this person? Mm, suspicious. We also see Ken is making salsa in a blender while sitting at his computer, like the weirdest fucking person in history. Hey, you know, sometimes when you're when you're there, you're you're playing a little while. You're playing, you know, you're you're you're, you're hardcore gaming. Sometimes you want a little pick me up, and if you're prepared. That's, I, I'm not going to say that's weird. I'm going to say that's that that's being extra prepared. That's a Boy Scout gamer right there who knows, who, he knows himself. He's the one with a little salsa later on down the line. I, I'm okay with this. I'm okay. So because of this sort of strange person, they disconnect the call. And then uh, Mitch is messaging with Blair and says he got a message from Laura Barnes, who is The dead, dead girl. Yeah. Yes. Blair says, she, uh, Blair gets a message as well. The message from Laura via Facebook says, what are you watching? So then Blair sort of gets freaked out, goes and clears her internet history of her watching the Laura Barnes Kill Yourself video. Mm -hmm. Adam calls Blair back and the sort of unseen extra is still there. The Hmm. rest rejoin the call. They say it's a glitch, but Mitch messages Blair and he has some doubts and think something strange might be going on because this is the one year anniversary of Laura's suicide. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, and Mitch sends Blair a link to a sort of strange things website, like a weird forum okay. that talks about uh, how you shouldn't answer messages from dead people and how it can kill you. Oh, so it's a creepypasta forum. Basically. Okay. So then Blair threatens to report the person pretending to be Laura on Facebook and tries to switch the count to an memorial count, but it doesn't work. So she starts reading up on an article that links Laura's death to cyberbullying. And then sort of she goes back to Facebook and then everything that she had typed on the sort of switch to memorial forum, has been, the text has all been replaced with a repetition of, I got her. So it basically the whole like, all work and no play, but it's sure. just, I got her. Sure. So so we're doing the literal ghost in the machine. Yeah, that's that that's the push to it. So after that, the report and unfriend buttons aren't working on Laura's page for a minute. But that sorts itself out, and then Blair unfriends Laura and gets a message from Laura saying you shouldn't have done that, and then says she needs her help. And then in the background, you get some great like extra in a bar acting from the rest of the cast because <laughs> we see little bits of their sky, and they're all like talking but the the volumes muted during the messaging scenes and like very like oh you know extra miming right yeah yeah clearly these people have been through some medium quality acting classes yeah so at that point they try to add a new person to the call uh who is val she answers and we get some sort of benign conversations then jess apparently posts a facebook picture of val passed out and a couple other sort of pictures pop up of her doing, you know, inappropriate things. All apparently posted by Val. Posted by Jess. Tagging Val. Jess says she didn't do it. And then there's there's an argument there. Blair accuses the Laura account over the messenger of secretly being Val. The Laura account denies it. Jess says she isn't able to take down the pictures, but she's trying and after several tries, they do come down. Then the same pictures get posted on Adam's Facebook page. Hmm. And Jess apparently sends a message to the Skype chat 
calling Val a bitch, but says she didn't do it. Then a message comes through from Val accusing Jess of having sex with the whole football team. Val says she didn't type it. Then a message from Blair comes up, and we are seeing Blair's computer, so we would know if she was typing. And she's not actually but typing. But she's not. Sure. Um, a message comes up there saying she agrees with Jess. Then, basically, she denies it, and then Val says, well, if you didn't send it, who did? And then that final person pops up and says, you know, it was me. And then we see that they are labeled as Billy. B-I-L-L-I-E. And then... Blair checks Billy's profile, and the listed name on it is Laura Barnes. Ooh. Ken jokes and says that maybe it's Laura. Val threatens Billy to take down the photos, but Billy is basically just dismissive and not worried about it. So then they say, everybody put your hands up, trying to, like, test and make sure no one's typing. And then the messages continue while people have their hands up. And they try to hang out on Billy, but can't. Then Billy sends Val a file that we don't see. Mm-hmm. We we just we know she got a file, and we see her reaction. She tries to call the cops, um, and then disconnects while she's on the phone with the cops. Hmm. They try to take a screen cap of the conversation, but it doesn't work. So then they decide to uh, hang up. Then Blair gets an email called Val Plays the Game with a link and tries to forward it, but can't. She opens the link, and it's a link for a conversation between Laura and Val, where Laura asked Val to take down the video, and Val told her to kill herself. So I think it's, yeah, it's it's a link to an Instagram post of a screenshot of a Facebook conversation because this is the most, like, 2014 movie. Yeah. So then, at this point, Ken says Laura got what she deserved in a weird turn for that character because he's been very laid back the whole movie. Mm -hmm. But then that sort of comes out of nowhere. Mitch agrees over a messenger to Blair, um, but Blair tries to defend Laura. Mm Mm-hmm. Basically says she's dealing with a lot, and then she sort of starts to type some stuff, and then deletes it. Mm-hmm. And sort of goes back and forth of, yeah, no, nah, I shouldn't say this. Um, which, which we all have done. Yeah. So it ends up with basically just like she was struggling with a lot. So she mm-hmm. tells Mitch she's going to hang up, but then she gets a message saying that if she hangs up, her friends will die. Mm. Uh, she accuses Mitch of pretending to be Laura. The screen grabs of Val and Laura's conversation gets switched to public and starts to get some comments mm. on Facebook. Um, so then Val comes back sitting perfectly still. It looks like a still shot, mm-hmm. but we hear a dog barking in the background. So we know that like the feed is live and there's a, just a long cut of her staring at the camera. Mm-hmm. So they try to call her to see what's up. And then her phone vibrates across the table while she's still sitting still in this neat, like, reveal of oh it's not just a still image it's actually live she's just sitting there creepy that's kind of cool and then we hear the police at the door the camera drops and we don't really see what's happening blair notes that val has a seizure history um and the police use a radio code for a suicide and the camera is then gets knocked to show val still on the ground Hmm. so it's like apparently val has killed herself and then Billy said, uh, messages and says that she wants to expose the secrets and post a video that is gets shared. So it's not posted to anything private, but they get there's a shared video. Ken says don't accept it, uh, but Blair does, and the picture in the file is a picture of Blair in bed with Adam, who is not her boyfriend. Mm. Um, 
And then there's another one. We don't know if the others got the file. We don't know what's, if they what they saw. But mm-hmm. we know what Blair got sent and what she saw. Sure. So they mute the call and switch their phones. But Billy, Billy unmutes them, apparently. Like, they unmute themselves. And then during that, Ken says he thinks he can put together, use a program to trace Billy's IP address. And then Billy starts a countdown. Like, just over Messenger, counting down. We don't know why. Mm. Um, Ken sends an antivirus program to everybody, or it's, it's sort of, it's called like Trojan Destroyer or something generic. Sure. Whatever malware bo- uh, bites. Sure. Um, they all run it, and everybody says, okay, like it worked, but at first Blair can't delete it, but it does work at just the last second, apparently. Mm. And then Billy's gone from the call, they celebrate, then Adam starts waving around a gun, because apparently if there's one thing Blair likes in a man, it is weirdly waving around weapons yeah it's her favorite thing that we 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 are establishing a pattern here yeah uh so mitch and blair have a conversation on messenger that seems sort of weird and they start going over laura's facebook uh mitch calls 911 which starts pretty normal but ends up weird the operator says you know are you sure everyone's safe even ken so Clearly, like, the the call is not normal, because mm-hmm. there's no reason for the person to ask about Ken. His name hasn't been used. Right. And says not to hang up the Skype call. So then Billy comes back, and Billy's cam goes live to a shot from behind sort of a grate. We can't really tell what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Ken stands up, and we see him off in a corner. So it's a shot from somewhere else in the room with Ken. Hmm. He, they sort of figure it out. The others are like, oh, you know, it's over there. So then Ken goes and he moves some stuff. And then it's just a shot of him staring at the camera. And then his call disconnects. Billy messages Blair saying she told her, uh, she told Ken not to hang up. Then they rejoin the call with Ken standing at the camera staring. And then we get some weird, like, buffering, cut jump shots. Which, the one thing that I really hate about this movie is the the way they use, like, artificial artifacting and things. Mm-hmm. But so we get some jump jump shots of Ken sort of flailing around and screaming, but he uh, then we get a shot of him with his hand in the blender and then the cover off the blender and the blender blade in his neck. Ah, uh, the old possessed blender guy. Yeah, yeah, well, you know that old that, that old chestnut. That old chestnut. <laughs> so Adam says he's leaving, and there's a knock on his door. Um, he carries the camera around and calls out, but doesn't find anybody he sears starts hearing some weird noises and screams he has a gun like you do so this and then they get really into the like artificial artifacting and all that skype disruptions to make it seem more realistic but what it actually just it's artificial you can tell it's artificial and it's annoying yeah uh see uh we're teasing you by not showing you everything and making it yeah no i'm yeah so billy tells adam to sit down and shut up uh, Billy reveals she wants to know who posted the Laura Barnes Kill Yourself video. We so- see more of that video, with which um, shows Laura having passed out and shat herself. She's wearing, like, white shorts covered in shit. Mm-hmm. And then there's just, like, a really bad Photoshop of Laura Barnes Kill Yourself. That's the end of the video. Blair returns to the Supernatural Forum, and there's basically, you are protected from danger by confessing your sins, is what mm-hmm. it says. So she admits to Laura uh, on Facebook that they were part of messaging her to kill herself under fake names, but they were just joking. They didn't mean it. Um, 
so Adam starts pacing. Billy says to chill out. And uh, they decide to pull a saw. And Billy says they're going to play Never Have I Ever. But the loser dies. And she says she'll kill them if they don't play. So <laughs> Billy starts running sins past the group. And we get a r- sort of rapid fire montage of people like doing Never Have I Ever. Putting their fingers down. Of airing their dirty laundry. Right. Jess started to rumor that Blair has an eating disorder. Blair crashed Jess' mom's car. Mitch made out with Laura. Mitch turned an atom to the cops for selling weed to escape charges against himself. Mm -hmm. Jess stole $800 from Adam, who is her boyfriend. I don't know if I've made that clear. Mm -mm. The movie doesn't either, but it seems like that's the the case. So then we get a long count from Never Have I ever, Ever Offered to Trade Jess's Life for Mine. Gets to one before Adam fesses up. It was him. So he had communicated with Billy, like, if you just, you know, just kill Jess and leave the rest of us. Right. It's kind of a shitty boyfriend thing to do. Adam starts to lose his cool then, and he starts volunteering, never have I ever had sex. Then Billy reposts it, and we learn that Blair has had sex, which we know she haven't had sex with Mitch at this point. Mm -hmm. So uh, then never have I ever fucked my boyfriend's best friend. Billy reposts it, and it's revealed Blair has had sex with Adam that point mm-hmm. um so spotify starts playing on its own a song called uh how you lie 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 mitch pipes up then says never have i ever roofied ashley this character not in the film adam gets more upset says he did uh then never have i ever forced ashley to get an abortion again same result oh yeah <laughs> it's adam's kind of an awful person generally from what i understand they're basically all terrible yeah they're all pretty bad yeah um the blair is sort of played as the innocent one for a lot of it Uh but they all they're they're pretty bad yeah um so then billy shows a video of adam and blair together uh a different time than blair had admitted to before Mm mm-hmm um, so Adam starts waving his gun at the camera for some reason. Like, that will yeah, scare the computer. I'm going to threaten the ghost in the on the internet sure. with the gun. So then we see Adam's printer print something out. And then everybody's like, what does it say? What does it say? He says, I'm not supposed to tell you. Um, and then Blair gets one that she also won't show. So there's these two people that have gotten something off of their printer that... Say they can't show it. Right. So then, basically, tensions start to mount up. Mitch starts getting upset at more secrets shared between those two. Sure. And Mitch says he's going to disconnect if they don't, if he can't see what's on Blair's paper. Billy says if he disconnects, he forfeits, so he dies. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, Blair shows a piece of paper that says, "If you show this, Adam dies." And then Adam turns the gun and blows his brains out. And as he falls. We see the paper that he had says, if you show this, Blair will die. Mm-hmm. This scene is really... It, it, it conti- the game continues on, but this is my favorite part of the movie. Hmm. Because it's it's the best acting, and it's really this simple premise of people being pressured into revealing secrets that manages to ratchet up the tension really well with just premise and acting. Mm-hmm. Like... It, it, and it's it's really I think this is the mo- moment when the movie shines the most. Mm-hmm. So everyone has a bit of an emotional moment after that. 
Um, then a message from Billy pops up saying they're still playing. Mm. Jess has asked Billy if she defaced Laura's grave. She doesn't answer. The light turns off. She freaks out. She locks herself in her bathroom, but carries the camera with her for some reason. So then Blair goes to chat roulette and basically starts asking people for help on chat roulette. I don't know why. Why chat roulette? But eventually she finds an obvious lesbian that is nice enough to say that she'll call the cops. So Mm -hmm. they make the call. Then we get a real sort of weird, lots of artifacting thing. But then it's revealed Jess is dead in her bathroom. We get a shot of her like choking on an active curling iron with some smoke. It's a neat little effect shot. But I wish it was done a little better. Or like the effects are fine. Mm Mm-hmm. It's the surrounding that makes it work not as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Then we get a lot of buffering, disruption stuff. There's a knock at Blair's door. Uh, she walks around. We get a jump scare from a phone alarm going off. Billy says the game's still on. Never have I ever posted a video of drunk Blair. They both deny it. Laura messaged Blair on Facebook asking why she was protecting Mitch. Blair then admits over Facebook Messenger that Mitch did it. We get a video of Mitch staring and then stabbing himself in the face with the knife that he's been carrying around. Then the countdown uh, starts again. And it's just Blair and Billy. Blair starts begging, scrolling around Laura's Facebook page, emphasizing their friendship in the past. It, It hits zero. Then Blair gets a notification that Laura posted a video. It is the full version of the Kill Yourself video that shows that... Blair was the one who filmed it. Mm-hmm. Although Mitch posted it, Blair was the one that filmed it. And then at the end, turns around the camera, revealing herself, and says, "I got her." So that is the callback to the "I got her" right. earlier. Right. Um, she says, "I'm sorry." Laura says, "What she did will live there forever." People start responding to the video, blaming Blair. Mm-hmm. Laura says she wishes she could forgive her. Then the call disconnects. Then we get some weird creaks, and someone hands closes the laptop, and a face lunges out of the darkness to the part of only part of the movie that isn't the computer screen. Right. This movie would be miles better if it ended fifteen seconds earlier. Yeah. The with just the reveal instead of the ghost coming to get you, like leaving her, all of her friends dead. She's revealed as the one that caused the suicide. Letting Mm -hmm. her deal with that would have been so much better. But we can't change the ending of the movie. Right. This movie isn't perfect by any means. But it's decent, and it does, again, it does what I really want out of a found footage movie, which is be different. Mm -hmm. The computer screen format's interesting, and I will say that watching Unfriended alone on a computer Mm -hmm. in an empty house is the most immersive horror experience that you are ever going to find. Yeah. It also managed to address some things like cyberbullying and unintended consequences for a small horror film, and it's nice to see that. Mm -hmm. Again, getting... Those social touchstones in is really a nice thing. It's not a great movie, but it's pretty good. And in a genre that I don't like overall, pretty good is kind of a ringing endorsement. It's fair praise. Yeah. I also, I found some indication that it was a one-take movie, which if it that is true, is very impressive. That is. There is a sequel that releases later this month, if you're interested. And it seems from the trailer like it's purely human antagonists. Hmm. Like, it is unfriended dark web, and it is basically, it looks like they stumble onto some sort of ring of kidnapping and sex trafficking. Huh. And then draw the ire of a group. Sure, sure. So I I think that 
will be interesting. If it is a more realistic take, I think could be pretty cool. But uh, a sequel is not a big surprise since it turned an estimated $1 million budget into a $64 million worldwide take, which isn't a lot, but that's still a huge profit. Sure, absolutely. So that's that brings up some interesting some interesting points as far as like story construction and mm. that sort of thing is that what, the definitely the, the the format is 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 a new thing and it's 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 interesting it's kind of a kind of a refreshing yeah. kind of a deal but the story wise it's it feels kind of messy yes there, there's obviously you know we've got we've got a lot of things going on we've got, even in a small cast of characters they're putting a lot of 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 interpersonal relationships and a lot of a lot of twists and a lot of a lot of surprises it's very intertangled and also it's going to be messy because it was partially improved sure sure and they had as, as my understanding at least five different scripts right that they were working from before they settled on one thing okay so it's it's had a lot of hands in the pot and it shows it yeah the but the, one of the things too and this may be a result of it of the multiple scripts kind of a thing but something that I noticed throughout, you know, you know, going through it and you know, getting getting the story and everything is that this ghost is exceptionally powerful. You have a, you have an entity that can not only not only lives, you know, exists throughout the throughout the web and throughout the machine and can and can take control of the the computers and mm-hmm. and and you know and. Um, Give it so change messages and and yeah. post messages to other people. Though there there there's one thing, uh, it seems to also be able to affect not only computers but other devices that are nearby because it talks about the, yeah. the phone call, yeah. the calling the cops. Yeah. It changes things there. But and which if that were by itself, okay, cool. That's kind of like again mm. that that ghost in the machine kind of uh, kind of premise. Okay, cool. But we're also get but we're also seeing possession like human possession yeah. out of it as well like having mm-hmm. uh having adam said shoot himself in the yeah. face and basically all of the people that died effectively killed themselves yes but the it's heavily implied that it, it is, is some sort of possession pr- pr- exactly and then to cap it all off that this ghost can physically manifest yeah and affect the real world like this is an extremely powerful spirit, and yeah, like I said, it's, the movie would be so much better if it didn't have the sure, laptop clothes sure, monster. No, absolutely, and you know the boo scare at the yeah. end. No, that's and that that's you're absolutely right. But the, again, though, again, that that also kind of adds to the kind of the messiness of it. And in the in the world building and the story building, you have effectively the Uber Ghost mm-hmm. that can literally do. Anything, you know, having having a powerful antagonist is great, but having an all powerful antagonist makes for a kind of a messy story a little bit. Yeah, and I I think the implication was supposed to be that if they had confessed, they wouldn't die. Yeah, but I don't think that runs true because I think Adam confessed to everything. Yeah, so well, and let alone in the like by using the Never Have I Ever game. Yeah, you're for, I mean they're. Granted, you're forcing confessions, but you're the individuals all involved are revealing their deepest, darkest secrets. But like Blair get uh, not Blair, um, Jess gets killed after she refuses to answer one. Sure. And Mitch gets killed because he didn't admit to posting the video. Mm. Blair 
ratted on him. Sure. And then Blair doesn't admit to filming the video before the timer runs out. Mm-hmm. So I think that's supposed to be the implication. Okay. But, like, what about Ken? Yeah. What about Adam? And and I'd have to go back and double check, and I'm not I'm not going to. No, no. To, to be sure to. about them, but I feel like that is where it sort of falls apart. Mm-hmm. And Val didn't confess anything either, so I guess that works. But yeah, there's there's these sort of outliers as far as Canon Adam with with that theme. Kennington. Kennington. Jesus. Master of salsa. The master of salsa. Yes. The waspiest name I think I've ever ever heard in my life, and it's he's it's this like fat ginger guy that doesn't fit in with the like all the pretty people straight out of Teen Wolf crowd. Hey, you know, that's the rest of the movie. Ev- every every beautiful crowd has to have their token fat guy. Yeah, like what? that's and it's like okay, here's this token fat guy. Also, he likes cooking. Also, he's the funny one. Also, he's the one that knows about computers. Anything other than generic pretty person, or weirdly obsessed with weapons, mm-hmm. they just shoved all those traits onto Ken? Well, you know what? Okay, I, one thing I will say, having been the token fat guy in a lot of groups, and I, I do kind of exhibit all of those traits. That's, Not the ginger part, but, you know. That's fair. <laughs> so, I mean, I suppose there's some truth to it. It just seems odd. Although, Kennington. I, I can't get past that. And it's just a weird, weird choice. <laughs> and like, why was Laura named Billy on Skype? I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Yeah. They made choices. And you know, I think I think something like that. Like the the name choices are. I'm I, I'm less. I'm really less worried about than 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 sloppy story built sloppy world building. But it is a thing that exists. But yeah. So so unfriended is decent, and it. I think it's a good. It's a good example of a non-traditional found footage movie, and I think that in order to be a good found footage movie, you have to be a non-traditional found footage movie at this mm-hmm. point, because otherwise you're just remaking the Blair Witch Project. Which they tried remaking the Blair Witch Project. We're not going to talk about that. Oh, but that movie is so bad, it's amazing. I actually like that movie, <laughs> but it's also not really found footage. Yeah, no. Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows, if you're, if you're not aware that it's, that it's a thing, that it exists... It is very much not Blair Witch. It is something very, very different. And again, it's very, it is absolutely in that category for me of so bad, I love it. And you'll never watch Burn Notice the same way again? You, I, I was just going to say that. <laughs> I was just going to say that. When we come back. Yes, we are going to take a brief break. Uh, when we come back, you are going to discuss your pick. Uh, a, a surprise find that I found, that, that I got a hold of called Banshee Chapter from 2013. Who boy, are we in for a ride. And uh, I'm going to have to rely on you for this one, because I've never fucking heard of it. (laughs) So, we are back. Well, we're back. Hello. Through the magic of internet radio, we've teleported forward in time. Indeed. So, I believe we were about to get into your pick, a movie I've never fucking heard of. Yeah, yeah, so, Banshee Chapter. This little guy is 150 milligrams of specially enhanced dimethyltryptamine DMT. Where'd you get it? Some friends in Colorado. Thousands of government-sponsored experiments did take place. Aren't you worried about the dangers of taking it? If this little chemistry experiment goes sideways, I want you to finish my book and dedicate it to me. 
he took a military-grade chemical that no one seems to have any documentation of. Then his friend is also missing. I don't like this. It can see me. The United States has a sincere apology. James, what happened to you? It's a 2013 film that... Gosh, how to... How to start, how to explain. So Banshee Chapter is a retelling of an older film and a much, much older short story from beyond. Uh, the classic H.P. Lovecraft story sure. uh, and horror movie from the what, early 90s? I think it was late 80s. Late um, 80s. From Beyond is a very interesting story and I like... I can't remember if the short story goes into it, but there was an emphasis in the original movie on the altered perception and mutation in the pineal gland mm -hmm. which tapped into some old like philosophical treatises yes and epistemological stuff that really was it was interesting and something that really put my hooks in for that movie even before the crazy ass visuals so it, you know it, it that is a story i'm familiar with right right um so with this we have this is a an, something of an oddity as far as the found footage genre goes. Uh, and, and unlike something like Unfriended or Blair Witch, where the entirety of the film is 100% that POV shot there, then the, the, it's, you're look, seeing it through the lens of the camera. I would say about half of okay. this movie is that way. But Banshee Chapter takes the kind of the premise of the story of From Beyond and combines it with a docudrama. So... A good portion of the film is going to be both documentary style shots as well as some more direct found footage styling of a film. Whereas the rest of it is a... The other half is telling the story from a current perspective. And however, even in, even in those sections of the film where it is not referencing direct uh, other fi other filmed, filmed media, documentary, found footage, that sort of thing. It is still shot in a very POV kind of way. Okay. The it's not necessarily that you're still a you're still a third person observer in a lot of the scenes, mm -hmm. but the way the camera work is done, it has a lot of that same kind of... It's not necessarily shaky cam. doesn't go full on to shaky cam. But it's almost like the camera is overcranked. Yeah. A bit. Yeah, there, there's that, that visual feel you get from found footage movies. Even that don't take it so far as, you know, swinging camera while you're running. Right. Right, right, right. So, the film opens with some documentary footage of reports on MK Ultra. If you're not familiar with MK Ultra, oh, I'm already on board. Then, on. well, this most for for those out in the audience, if you're not familiar with MK Ultra, well, first of all, what are you doing here? You should know about this. Now, MK Ultra is was a series of experiments done by the CIA back in the late 1950s up through the early 70s before it finally was completely, <laughs> as far as as far as the official words go, officially. It was officially canceled in the in the, in the early seventies, wherein the CIA used various mind-altering substances, various drugs. LSD was a major was yeah. a major aspect. Most of this. famously LSD, but there was also like external influences. They did a lot with like um, suggestion mm -hmm. and like light filter response and a, a lot of different things. Right. Ultimately, the goal was 
in effect, mind control. Mm -hmm. uh, setting up the, kind of that idea of, you know, the Manchurian candidate, sleeper agents that don't even know that they're agents kind of a thing. So, and it, certain, some stories about MK Ultra tend to say that they, they branch out into, like, psychic awareness and mental powers, though it's, com that's mostly unfounded, but... So we so we start with 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 some MK MK Ultra uh, video and documentary okay. and such with this film, and this is all kind of this 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 opening sequence before we hit the title card is actually fairly long. But we we, we see our, our kind of our, one of our first characters, James, um, who is a writer. He's doing a book on DMT. It's dimethyl. Dimethyl some weird chemical DMT. name. It's, it's DMT, right? Yeah, a mind-altering drug that was used. It was, I mean, it was used a lot during the '60s uh, as a kind of a hallucinogen, and it still mm -hmm. is some used today. It's now, though, it's not nearly as popular as I understand. Yeah, it's. I think it's it's out of vogue. Right. But. But he's but anyway he's he's wanted to write this book about DMT and its use during the MK Ultra experiments, mm -hmm. and as a he's more of a method writer than uh, than a necessarily a pure research author, and decides to take a pure sample of DMT in order to experience what these people in these studies experience while under the effects of this drug. Okay. So and and it's it's they they make constant references and constant notes to mention that it's pure DMT that it's that it's the it's, it's the high quality this is military CIA grade DMT right this is the good stuff this isn't your street level DMT There's... right 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 he references that he he got this uh, he got this sample from his friends in Colorado but they're never actually specifically stated and. So that's kind of our kind of, kind of our, our beginning is we, we have this this individual who we, we, along with his friend they are these this friend is recording and he's basically saying all right so I want you to record this just in case something goes real weird so we've got some we've got some okay. some reference right some 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 evidence and that sort of thing so we see some, kind of some of the effects it doesn't really kick in right away it takes mm -hmm. a little bit of time uh, but it starts to starts to when it starts to take effect on James he sees have have auditory hallucinations, extreme paranoia, and this this constant this idea that something is coming, right? The during this section, the movie uses a lot of negative frames. Uh, basically, it cuts to black, kind of like with your artifacting yeah. from Unfriended, that it uses kind of these negative frames and jump cuts to really kind of artificially ramp up tension. Sure. It reminded me a lot of the end credit sequence to the Dawn of the Dead remake. So when you've it got sort of the goes between kind of back and forth. You've got kind of that video camera, and it'll kind of it'll fuzz out, and then it'll come to the come to a new scene, sure. and there's a little bit more, and then it fuzzes out and does a little bit of this again. It did a lot of that. That was kind of the visual okay. style for this opening bit. The James and his friend Rennie begin starting to hear strange noises coming from a radio downstairs. Now, something that caught me at this point was that James is the one that's taking the drug, Rennie is not. But Rennie's is hearing not. it too. But Rennie's hearing it too. So whatever effect this is having is an area I kind of feel like it takes everybody in. That's It's unknown okay. at this point. So they, they rush downstairs and they find this radio and it's having this weird kind of calliope music, almost like ice cream van kind of music. 
And then there is a voice that comes over this station, but it's very, very difficult to make out what it's saying, at least from mine. I, I should have some trouble with, with picking pro- out processing certain, distorted certain, voices. Yeah, yeah, that'll happen. Yeah. At this point, there's there's a, a bit of overreacting on James on overacting on James's part, and he claims that there's something coming toward the house. Okay. And for this point, we have what kind of what I call a jumble cut montage. So you get brief flashes of scenes that you can just barely make out, interspersed with several kind of those black frames, like I said, sure. like that Dawn of the Dead kind of remake end credits bit. It's all pretty tame for the most part. Mm-hmm. But just before the title card, we are actually given a genuinely good jump scare. A lot of the problems I have with boo scares are that they're used improperly. Right, they too often directors confuse startling you with truly scaring you. Yeah, it, it's that you know the the what's the 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 guy that's the there's another there's a YouTube creator the has the um, good bad flicks. Yeah, right. Yeah. He talks about the the bagul scares from yeah. in, from was it Insid- Insidious Sinister Sinister. Thank you. You know the the, the guy at the, at the very end, boo kind of thing. And that and that's what you get with most of these boo scares. It's it's it startles you. It doesn't scare you. This was not that way. Like I I was sitting there and you know I've watched a lot of horror movies over the years. I've become very desensitized to a lot of what's scary. Sure. For other folk, I I I shrieked in my chair. Basically, what what it sets up is that they use kind of this slow camera pan on mm-hmm. what is apparently a completely unremarkable setting uh it looks to be it's an outdoor thing there's kind of on the outsides of this kind of cabin and there's nothing really in frame and as the camera pans right james comes into view along the right side of the screen Mm -hmm. completely motionless uh bloody around the eyes and the mouth and his eyes are gone Mm. and He's on screen for a good half second before my brain actually kind of caught up to what was happening, and I actually processed what I was seeing. When it finally picked up, because it, it, I was thoroughly unsettled, and that's and that's one of my it's one of my favorite kinds of scares is that those things that that are portrayed that should it shouldn't be that way, yeah. right? And that's what kind of sets that that fear aspect off mm. in the brain of going that's not natural, that's not right. And so, so it was fun, and it was it was kind it was effectively technically it was it was a it was a boo scare, yeah. But it was a slow burn boo scare, and I'm cool with that. Like that was that was it was well done. I wish they had continued to do that the rest of the film, but you know, you can't have everything. Sure. And and then we get the title card. Very simple Banshee chapter. After oh, the experiment, James has disappeared. His friend Rennie. Uh, is being questioned by the police. They're trying to pin. They're trying to pin something on him, mm-hmm. but they have no body. He's just gone, vanished into thin air. And as such, they don't have anything to charge him with, and so they let him go. And then it tells us that three days later, Rennie also disappears. And here we have that, and they were never heard from again kind of trope. Yeah, that that's a weird. It, it's a strange writing point. To introduce Rennie that early, have him cross the conceptual barrier of of the title card, be involved again, and then disappear instead mm-hmm. of just cutting to the disappearance. Right. That's a that's a weird weird writing choice. It is. Uh, and 
I, I, I kind of like I, I see I see kind of what they were doing there as far as establishing that in the outer world, you know, beyond this experiment that they had done, that there are consequences to things happening. People disappear, and somebody's got it. Somebody's somebody's going to take some fall. There's got there's questions that are going to be asked. Sure. But then to just immediately have it, and then he was gone, <laughs> was is is odd. But at this point, we take up with Anne, who is a an investigative journalist with an online news agency, uh, who is an old friend of James, and she's looking for him. Four years have passed. Okay. At this point, you know James, the experiment, all of this, James and Rennie, they have been gone for four years, and Anne is now trying to is on the case, you know, try and find out what happened to her friend, and. It mentions that, you know, they had, they had kind of fallen out of direct contact, you know, they, they emailed back and forth mm-hmm. now and again, uh, leading up to this experiment. And so, you know, they, they it, it makes it, it, it alludes that they were very, very close in college and, 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 then, and then life gets in the way, sure. you know, you do your thing, you move to different places and. Uh, and and that sort of thing, and so that's kind of where we're at right now. But it's a, that's an important that's an important time point is that four years have happened since James and Rennie disappears. Okay. So Anne goes to the cabin, goes to James's cabin where he held the exp- the experiment, finding everything just exactly as it was left. This this caught to me. That that's kind of immediately had that question of four years. Have gone by, at least now. I will say, I be- I'm I'm 99 sure that they said that it was four years, but it was mentioned once and then mm. never again. Okay. So I may be misremembering that, but I'm pretty sure that's given. At least some a, a fair portion of time has happened. Sure. Even with the missing persons case, wouldn't the house eventually have gone back on the market, or like his family at the very least would have gone through some of his belongings, and like. At this point, all of their notes and everything that they had set up for this experiment is just where they left it when they disappeared. I, I mean, it, it, presumably at least the cops would have been through yeah, it unless yeah. they're just the worst cops. But this is a horror movie, this is a horror movie. so the worst cops is a thing. Absolutely. Um, so one thing I will say as I go through this is that being able to accurately describe how this movie goes and and do like a kind of a, a full review kind of, of it is very very difficult mm-hmm. because this movie we talked about having some 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 messy some messy world building yeah. with 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 unfriended <sighs> there's a whole lot going on in this film um, <laughs> and not only within the the actual pacing and the actual plot of the mm-hmm. film, but also in timelines because we are jumping back and forth. They'll they'll jump in those docu footage from before from back in the back in the seventies. They'll have they'll jump in some of the footage that James and some of his information that he's taken. So there's there's a lot of temporal jumping. Okay, that's happening that makes things that kind of makes things a little confusing, a little hard to follow the screen, um, which is unfortunate, but. Uh, so Anne's going through James's cabin and finds a, there's a stack of pictures that she finds in his desk that kind of prompts a brief flashback sequence. So we get 
kind of showing the relationship between James and Anne. It was a very, very close relationship. Mm-hmm. It's obvious that James thought more of their relationship necessarily than Anne did. She's a bit more reticent of mm-hmm. it, but there was definitely some romantic tension between them. So it kind of kind of builds that why she is so so frantic to find that this per- to find this person. It gives that yeah. that extra impetus. Um, this is cut short by we get a little sound scare at the door. There's that thump. At the mm-hmm. door, and then she has something moving around downstairs. Um, and she goes to see who it is, calls out, hey, who's there? But there's no payoff, because we immediately jump to a new location. Oh. And right. it, 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 it's things like this that, may, that keep this movie from being, in my estimation, a good movie. I will say, there were a lot, there's a lot that they could have done with it. There's a lot of potential in this in this flick didn't quite make it they didn't do it because i think they were just there was too much Mm -hmm. that they were trying to tie all together and it 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 made for a pretty a kind of a jumble of a film Mm -hmm. but we cut we cut away to what i can only assume to be a nearby town uh it's obvious that james's cabin is out in the woods uh this is this is nevada uh, out in the Black Rock Desert, and so James's James Cabin is kind of out in the wilderness, and so we, it's what I would, can only imagine is the nearest town, but they don't say anything about that. And Anne goes Anne goes into a TV repair shop and talks to the the proprietor, who apparently she has been in contact with already, uh, and this man is apparently her her expert for shortwave radio, okay, uh, communications. Um, and he, they, he starts explaining number stations. Oh, I fucking love number stations. Right? They're like my favorite thing. I know. Number stations are great. So you have that, that idea that there are frequent, there are radio frequencies out there, most of them on the AM band Mm -hmm. that will broadcast at very, very specific times of day or times of year. And it's just a voice on the on that on that broadcast saying numbers or saying something it yeah it'll be a voice saying things or sometimes like i think there was one that was like old audio clips mm-hmm. that didn't seem to relate to anything there number stations are a fascinating fascinating phenomenon and it, I've I've dug into a lot of the conspiracy mm-hmm. theories on them and there are a lot of conspiracy Any, anything theories. from aliens to spies and it's all glorious shit uh huh it's 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 super entertaining, and which is why I was starting to get very excited because I'm like, yeah. ooh, we're gonna do some number stations kind of things in here. And like I say, there there are aspects of this that really have a lot of potential. Um, but he claims that the, this TV guy claims that the noise heard by James and Rainey because they recorded it because it was all on video mm-hmm. from the radio is actually a number station broadcast that he knows. Something he has heard before. Cool. Uh, it's a station known by enthusiasts around or in the in the community as the Lonely Traveler. Supposedly, the origination point of this station is near to where James's cabin is. The problem. So Anne wants to know how she can record this broadcast, and is told that she needs to go out into the into that area. Extremely early in the morning, like three, three or four o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. with this particular, you know, with a receiver and be able to kind of run recording device, and because that's that's when it broadcasts, very very early in the morning. 
The problem, this is a continuity issue, what happened to be, but it definitely stuck to me, was that the footage of when James heard the broadcast seems to put it somewhere in the daytime. By the light level, it seemed like late afternoon. And yet, it only... This this station apparently only plays early, early in the morning. Could be continuity. It could just be like... Somebody didn't blue tint hard enough on a day's night shot. Like Right, right. Um, there is another option that they kind of put through a little bit later on in that the, so this this whole idea of and the connection to the story from beyond is that the DMT the drug awakens kind of a receiver signal in the human brain that is able to receive these messages and visitations from beyond okay and so it kind of through not through exposition, but through showing rather than telling, they kind they seem to put forth later on that the by taking the DMT by taking the drug, mm-hmm. you open yourself up to this, and this station is part of this whole, this broadcast is part of the, this whole thing, and that you just you're able to hear it whenever it wants you to okay. hear it. But so. They so again, Anne and this guy, they have their conversations. He's explaining shortwave radio and how it works and number stations yeah. and all of this. And then she does a really weird turn. Uh, she starts, you know, being very, very receptive, very mm-hmm. open, and does this weird turn and starts accusing him. Uh, t- tells him that she knows who he is. Apparently, this guy was an NSA codebreaker during the mm. late sixties and seventies. Which is the same time kind of time frame as sure. the end of MK Ultra, and it kind of had come, turns this weird accusatory kind of kind of acting choice, yeah. Which is a very weird kind of a weird flip from what they had already established, but whatever. Out in the desert, Anne waits for the broadcast to start. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's very very dark out there, and they they use a kind of time lapse series of cuts. Uh, it seemed like they're trying to use this as a method of character development, but it didn't really give much of value. It's mm-hmm. like you see what they were trying to do. The broadcast fi- uh, finally comes on, and it's the same music heard by James and Rennie. This, like I said, this kind of ice cream van calliope, mm-hmm. which is super creepy and great. Like the audio choices were really, really good. Uh, and as she's doing there, she apparently, you know, has had some instruction on shortwave radio and is able to determine that the signal is getting stronger, as though it is getting closer. Mm-hmm. And so, being a true horror movie protagonist, she gets out of the car to go investigate whatever, whatever thing may be approaching her vehicle. Mm-hmm. And in this, we see this scene basically through her video camera. Because okay. she's, being a journalist, she's recording everything. And so it's, it's, it's out in the desert, it's the middle of the night, it's super dark, there's that night filter mm-hmm. uh, lens kind of effect on the camera, and we get a traditional boo scare. Mm-hmm. The, the camera's panning around, it's empty desert, and then there's a figure out in the, out in the, out in the dark, and then, oh god, oh god, oh god, crazy, you know, Scared, 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 yeah. run back into the car and get the hell out of there. 
but you, it's, you get that just a very, very quick flash. There's obviously a figure out there. Kind of Slenderman-ish. Mm. Kind of, they were kind of running off of that kind of creepypasta kind of a thing. At, the, at this point, we go back. She is back at her office and at the news web news organization that she works for. And having a conversation with her editor. And mm. talking about this, this story that she's going after. And we have this kind of side story. Concerning, a, concerning an author by the name of Thomas Blackburn, who mm. is very obviously a Hunter S. Thompson corollary. Like, it's, it's a very much a stand-in. Um, he's involved in the heart of the 60s drug culture and all of this thing. And his book, uh, entitled Friends in Colorado, mm. referring back to the people that James said he's got his pure DMT from, uh it kind of becomes an interesting point of coincidental storytelling because mm-hmm. she and and finds the the letter that that came with the package that James got they got the drug with and it's signed for your friends in Colorado and the editor goes oh you don't know about that oh yeah no that's that's this thing hold on a second and walks over to her office and a, just conveniently happens to have a copy of that exact book oh it, it's it's wonderful how these things work out so yeah, she just happens to have this video in her office, and so she's able to make this connection of, oh, maybe, like, and apparently this Blackburn, he would always, he would sign his letters the same way. Yeah. Your friend's in Colorado. Okay. You know, this This isn't a bit of an aside, and I hate, I hate to break your phone. Oh, no, not at this, all. This actually, it makes me think a lot of, more than Hunter S. Thompson, um, Ken Kesey. I'm not familiar. Um, he wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, okay. But he was part of a group called the Merry Pranksters that would go around and dose people unknowingly with lsd mm-hmm. like that was part of a thing he did to sort of try in an effort to expand people's minds and he, so he was part of that whole movement but this has a, this has a feel like that to yeah me. yeah no absolutely and especially with some things that happen later on that makes more sense i i just i was not i was not familiar with uh with that uh with that individual so and watches uh, watches a video that uh, a tape that she found at James's cabin part of his research notes mm-hmm. and the video is their 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 video videotaped notes on the actual MKUltra experiments mm-hmm. uh, taking place at this mysterious government bunker known as chamber five and it's actually the recorded the these actual recorded test subjects back from the I think it mentions something like it's late 50s. Okay. And we see test subject 11, mm-hmm. who is given the DMT, strapped into a chair, and left alone in a dark room. Uh, we see this through kind of the one-way glass. So the, 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 the test proctor is kind of on, on one side of it, just observing things that are happening. Uh, the subject talks about hearing voices, that the voices are there in the room with him. He begins saying something. It's very, very difficult mm-hmm. to make out. It seems possibly like a string of numbers kind of connecting back to that lonely traveler station. Suddenly, the subject leans forward in his chair. He's strapped in, so he leans forward as best as he can. Says, they're here. They're here. And then is just yanked backward, chair and all, to disappear into the darkness. Hmm. The proctor calls for a response from the subject. You know, are you there? What's going on? You know, talk to me, that sort of thing. And the test subject then bursts out of the darkness, pounding on the windows, terrified. You know, let me out, let me out. He's no longer restrained. 
Hmm. Which is interesting. So whatever yanked him out there, helpfully undid Popped his straps, which is yeah. which is very, it's it's very nice. It's very considerate, I think. The final images from the MK Ultra video show a body on a table with a person sitting at their head. Mm-hmm. The person proceeds to cut open the back of the skull and extract something from the brain with a syringe. Mm-hmm. The voiceover track tells us that this is the primary source for the DMT. Ah. That the we, we, we kind of see later that this, this pure DMT mm. they always refer as I said they always refer to this pure form is modified with this alternate chemical that is being extracted from the brains of the dead. Um, the which Anne mentions when she meets with her editor a little bit later says the DMT was being extracted from the pineal gland of medical corpses. Now, how she knew specifically that they were extracting it from the pine- from the pineal gland when all you saw was a syringe being shoved into a brain, sure. that's it's a mystery that is unnecessary, apparently. But, uh, but she also importantly states that the last 35 minutes of the tape have been erased. So Anne finally goes to meet with Blackburn uh, with some stereotypical investigative journalist lying mm-hmm. claiming that she's someone else and kind of setting up this story and manages to get invited to go tripping with him and some friends mm-hmm. uh, this character is thoroughly unlikable um, which is kind of kind of where it kind of felt that Hunter S. Thompson mm-hmm. that very kind of recluse irascible kind of angry, bitter individual. Okay. It's, it's, that is that image that you kind of get from from that guy. Um, it's these the kind of character that's so far up his own ass that they don't get they can't see how pathetic they are. Mm-hmm. Right? I've known a few people like that. Oh you know. <laughs> At his house we're introduced to Callie, uh, who is revealed to be the person who is making the DMT that was given to James. She's pretty bland as a character, but the main point of the scene is to start to show that Blackburn is on to fans Anne's fake identity. Because they start mentioning she Callie brings up unprompted Oh what's what are you some some kind of square? This it's not like it's not like this is some CIA project or anything. Like it's yeah. and it's one of those like, wait a minute, why did you use those that particular choice of words? So we kind of start to get that something's fishy here. Uh, next, in his study, Blackburn pours himself and Anne a dose of the DMT into a couple of shot glasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, he drinks his back, and Anne kind of surreptitiously pours hers into the trash. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes over and kind of pours each of them a glass of whiskey, and they kind of sit back, and they're, they're chatting a little bit and drinking the whiskey, and... Eventually, Blackburn calls Anne out about her deception. Mm-hmm. He's known this entire time yeah. who she actually is, and so, but has this. There's this weird kind of creepy moment and thoroughly despicable kind of moment where he mentions, "You know what? I don't really mind the lies. I've told a few myself. Uh, primarily, that lie being that the drug was not, in fact, in the shot glasses, but it was in the whiskey that he gave her." Ah. So now I'm kind of seeing that connection to, uh, what would you say? Would you the Merry Pranksters. The Merry Pranksters. Yeah, Ken Kesey's the author, but it was a whole group. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's that he's, he's he, he, he kind of he recognized that she probably wasn't going to do this. So I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to take her on this little, on this little trip of ours, no matter what. Um, he's kind of a shit state, to be, kind of, to be completely honest with you. Yeah. He's, well, you know. 
So Anne heads into the next room, and Callie is freaking out about something coming. Mm-hmm. That, that Again, that, that idea that you've let something in, and now it's coming to find you. The Lonely Traveler station starts broadcasting on the radio, out of nowhere. Callie uh, starts screaming. Anne runs to her and says that something was, and she says that something was looking at her from from the window. Mm-hmm. She says, and she, you know, she goes to kind of look and see. If there's nothing there. They're on the second floor, so something looking in through the window is an odd thing to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, Callie says that says it's here. Kind of got, again. They're the, one neat thing about this is that they use repetition in an interesting way mm-hmm. to kind of keep these themes going of like building that dread that it's here they're here that kind of thing yeah the, there's that idea of oncoming that keeps mm-hmm. coming up the says that you know it's here and that it's down by the back door so Anne goes to investigate Nothing's there at first. You know, she goes mm-hmm. out and it does that kind of that build tension, slow pan, like it's there's going to be something there. And of course there's not. Yeah. And then the camera kind of pans away and it does this weird, it's, it's a weird camera choice, is that camera pans away to the left, gets a certain, gets a certain distance, and then starts coming back. And it gives you that, 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 that signal that there wasn't anything there before, but there sure as hell going to be now. Well, I mean that—that's—that's that's a shot straight out of Paranormal Activity. Yeah. When they had the the, when yeah. the, the fan. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, sure enough, there is something at the back door. Again, it's whenever they make, whenever they show whatever this creature is in a scene, it's always incredibly, incredibly fast. So you get just the sense that something is there and it is wrong. But you don't actually get, get to see it. You don't get enough to, to process right. which it together. can be a, which in a lot of cases is a good thing. You know, that's that, that idea of the less you show the monster, the scarier the monster yeah, will be. Yeah, the, the idea that your mind will make something scarier right, than exactly. whatever you, they can afford on their effects budget. So Anne sees the thing through the door. She screams. It crashes through the glass. So it actually, this is the first time we see it, it actually has, takes, can physically alter mm-hmm. the world around it. Um, and she, and Anne runs away from it, strangely, as slowly as possible. <laughs> I, it has that shot of her kind of, kind of like running up the stairs. Normally you would expect, you know, if you're being chased by some terrible monster from beyond the stars, mm-hmm. you're gonna scramble and stumble up some stairs as fast as you possibly can. She just seems to take it at a light jog, which is odd, but you know, whatever. The, there's no good shot of what is behind her. It, all we, the only thing we see is it comes through the door and then it's just on her up the stairs into the in, into the room. Upstairs, Blackburn does not believe Anne and Callie. Uh, he's, uh, we're, we're tripping. You're hearing things. This yeah. is all part. It's all part of the experience. And he, he till he himself hears a noise from downstairs. He kind of goes over to check the door, and so we kind of see that shot through the door of him to the side, down the down the stairwell, and this shadow kind of falls over the end, bathing the the base of the stairwell in darkness, and he freaks out, slams the door shut, kind of takes that breath, but then 
immediately just still insists on it being the hallucination from the drug. Like, mm-hmm. there's still that rational part of his mind going, no, I'm tripping, I'm not actually like, seeing this these This isn't things. actually real, it's right. just... At this point, the power cuts out, and something starts banging on the door before the door before the door just kind of kind of slowly creaks open. Mm-hmm. Camera pans away from the opening of the door kind of through the darkness and we get another boost scare. Because we get Callie's face coming into the light. Mm-hmm. So it's a boost scare, so some marks so some marks off. Mm-hmm. But it's the image is so genuinely creepy that I let it slide on this one. So her face is just porcelain white. Uh, the eyes are empty black pits and she's just vomiting blood, right? It's, it's very, it was a very kind of, it felt very Japanese horror mm-hmm. in its kind of, the in framing. its visual, in the framing. Uh, the face, the way they had her face done up reminded me a lot of the Michael Myers mask, right? Which is always held an interesting point, an interesting place in me because, it's, I mean, as we all know, it's a painted, it's a painted Shatner mask. Sure. And just taken by itself in the full light, it's silly looking. Mm-hmm. But on Michael Myers, in the dark, like, that's a creepy as hell image. Well, I mean, it's, the, we can talk for, for hours and hours about how brilliant the filmmaking was behind right. Halloween. Right. So, Anne and Blackburn uh, come to... That was just something had knocked them out. They come to an unknown amount of time later, and Callie's gone. Blackburn's kind of being kind of a jerk, and so they have that kind of character interaction where it's very, it's still antagonistic, but it's they're starting to recognize that they're they need each sure. other to get out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and they start hearing strange noises coming from the TV, which is just kind of white static, white noise, uh, and so they hightail it out of there. They drive driving away from Blackburn's house. He complains about the CIA taking something as pure and good as regular DMT and screwing with it. He calls it says specifically making it dark. Mm-hmm. And as they drive back, they drive away. The screen fuzzes briefly, and we're we get taken back to the CIA tape. This time with patient fourteen. So she's given the modified DMT with the extract from the primary source. So, brain juice. Sure. And is held in the dark room. From what little we can see of her, she moves around a little bit, kind of feeling the effects of the drug start to kick in. Uh, Then she starts just screaming and writhing in the chair. And suddenly, everything goes black as the single light above her goes out and the recording skips. The proctor, the doctor behind the glass, calls out to number 14, uh, shining a flashlight into the room. So you can kind Mm -hmm. of see, you can see what's going on in there. But she's just gone. The The doctors, they kind of go looking for her throughout the kind of the complex that they've got mm-hmm. going. They finally find her behind a curtain in what I imagine is probably her room. Because it's, it's, it looks kind of like a hospital room kind of a thing. So they've got the hospital curtains and everything hanging okay. up. She is convulsing and crying and seemingly bleeding from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And she kind of collapses onto the floor. And we kind of flip around and now we see Eleven. Patient 11 from the original viewing of the mm-hmm. tape. Somewhere, he's here too, just pops into existence, somehow back from wherever it was that he was taken. Mm-hmm. He says, all he says is, they came through. 
and then it jumps back to Anne and Blackburn, which is like that's what I'm kind of saying about it being kind of jumbly a little yeah. bit. Is that like it's they make these choices to cut in and out of these various timelines and in a very very strict and jarring kind of way. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's an interesting choice because that's. I I could see in a traditionally shot film, mm-hmm. I could see that happening, and it wouldn't be that strange, right? Because it'd just be like a story fill flashback in the middle of an sure. action scene. But doing it found footage creates a very sort of strange mm-hmm. feel to it because that is film or artifact unconnected mm-hmm. to the current. Yeah. Passage. Yeah, exactly. Like, at least when we were first introduced to the CIA tape, it was Anne sitting at her desk watching Watching it, the tape. Right? Yeah. Now, when we jump into it, it's just the audience is being told the story. Yeah. It's, a little it's bit. Just, You're getting a little it, bit more. It's sort of raw exposition. Yeah. That it feels, like I said, it's very jarring. And, I mean, that obviously, I mean, it could have been probably an intentional choice mm. to kind of keep you on edge and not as a viewer not really knowing exactly where you are and what's going on. But I don't know that it was... I don't know that it was as successful mm-hmm. as they'd intended. So back in the car, um, they're talking a bit about James, and Blackburn confirms that he's the one that sent James the drug. The They come up with this plan to head to Callie's house to see if there's any information on where she got the formula mm-hmm. for the DNT. Because they said this was a military grade... She had to find it from somewhere. How did she get a hold of it? Maybe through that they can find some information about, you know, at the at the very least where it came from, if not how to counter its effects, because as far as, because they're both under its effects now. Yeah. Uh, through the window we get this flash of red. It was, again, very, very quick, so it's, it was, yeah. I couldn't really quite make it out. Uh, that scares the shit out of Anne. And at this point, we get the first real activity that is not given to us just in these brief flashes. We, we look back to the back seat where mm-hmm. Blackburn's hanging out having a smoke, and his eyes have gone completely white, and he's bleeding from his facial orifices. Um, which is kind of, I mean, it was a jarring sight, and it was nice to, for a change for this movie to actually have time to, to give see you something and process it. A linger. Right, and, and actually, you know, be able to recognize what it is I'm looking at and what the effects of this whatever is going on right. actually have on the people. So Anne jumps in the driver's seat and takes off. Uh, proximity seems to be a factor in all of this because as they drive away, Blackburn starts to recover. Uh, he gets his, you know, his eyesight comes back. He kind of stops bleeding mm-hmm. directly from from his eyes and eyes and mouth, and he, he seems to kind of start to get himself back under control. At what I, we can only presume to be Callie's house, uh, which is this an old neighborhood, kind of looks like a foreclosed or partially constructed neighborhood on the outskirts of Reno. The okay. The was Anne and Blackburn. They get out of the car. They go to go to investigate. They're going to go in to check out Callie's house. Blackburn appears to get a, just an incredibly sharp headache, and mentions that the drug amplifies what is already there, turning the mind into a receiver and quote lets them in. And this information comes completely out of the blue, unprompted. 
He gets out of the car, gets a headache, and go and spouts this information. Anne asks him, how do you know this? He says he doesn't, and it's just a feeling that he gets. Hmm. So, props to them on on having a character ask the question that the audience is having. Yeah, because that was my first thought. <laughs> like, was, how, how do, do you, you know? know this? Yeah. So, so definitely, uh, definitely props to them on on that particular bit. So, Anne space. So, Blackburn stays at the car because he's having issues. Uh-huh. And Anne goes off to investigate, and as she's kind of patrolling around the outs- the exterior of the house, Blackburn asks her if she's ever read any Lovecraft. And now we get, if it wasn't already obvious, we're gonna have it we're gonna have it beaten over our heads, and he goes to explain the plot of From Beyond. Okay. <laughs> so I wasn't expecting that, but Yeah, I wasn't right? either. <laughs> and and for me, like going into it, recognizing and knowing that this was a retelling and a rehashing of From Beyond, having them mention From Beyond and kind of explain the story of it was a little funny, um, and it was kind of out of nowhere. So to kind of feel like that, I'm being beaten over the head yeah. by yes, this is a Lovecraft story, but whatever. Uh, inside the house, it's basically empty of everything, furniture anything like it looks like a a housing development that no one had ever moved into and this is supposed to be Callie's place mm-hmm. uh like there are unfinished cabinetry and that sort of thing because it, it explains earlier that this this neighborhood was one that had it didn't actually get finished the the developer ran out of money and it all mm-hmm. kind of went and so people were able to pick up these properties just for a song because of everything that had happened the only thing that we do find in the house are some security cameras and a big vault-looking metal door that leads down into the basement, where presumably Callie had her lab set up. Uh, even with the lights on, everything is still really dark. And that is a theme throughout the whole film, is that everything is very, very dark. Mm-hmm. Um in some cases, it's used very well to obscure things, you know, and kind of let the brain let let the brain kind of make its own sure. assumptions. And other times, it's obscuring what things that you really should be seeing, which is unfortunate. But it's very very dark. And Annie discovers that Callie found the location where the CIA tape was made. She found Chamber Five because it finds this map. Okay. With like these these you know notations mm-hmm. and whatnot on it, um, there are parts of brains in Callie's lab just kind of sitting on a table, like you do. Um, and as she's Anne's kind of looking around the room and all of this various information, and there's a lot of information to take in. She sees a, a chalkboard with a formula on it. And recognizes that the things that the patients were saying in the CIA, in the tape was the formula for the drug. Oh. And that and realizes that it the CIA didn't come up with this formula. It was given to them by whatever is on the other side. Hmm. Uh, by these these extra dimensional creatures. 
which was a neat, neat kind of reveal, and it kind of as and when you think back on it, of like remembering the the voice in the Lonely Traveler station, you're like, yeah. oh yeah, no, that was that was this this formula that I'm seeing on this on this chalkboard, well, which was a neat. That's interesting. It was neat. Yeah. Uh, at this point, though, we have this the the classic "it's in the room with you" trope. So we she's seeing like the the security cameras and see so she kind of runs it back a little bit and yeah. sees herself coming into the room kind of lets it run and there's another figure that comes in that she's that she recognizes as Callie mm-hmm. uh, and it comes down the stairs like into the room where she's at and when she finally gets that whole wait a minute there's something here yeah. and so calling out you know Callie is that you while making her way to the stairs to GTFO and I'm just, you're sitting there waiting for the boo scare. You're waiting for something to come out of the darkness and freak her out so she'll mm-hmm. run. And, oh, yep, there it was. As you get that, the hand coming out of the darkness, grabbing her, grabbing hold of her on the stairs. Okay. It's, and, and that's, I think that's, that, that kind of showcases where my disappointments with the film was that with a couple of exceptions, a lot of the scares, you're expecting them. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're telegraphing all of this going into it, and you're like, okay, yep, there's that. I was ready for that. I was ready for that. Every once in a while, like the like the the pre-title card, yeah, it gets you. And well, I think I, I think it's hard for for people like you and me to get into the right headspace for these movies because I, I think we're so seasoned at seeing the pacing of a modern horror mm-hmm. movie. That we catch telegraphs sure. better than a non-sort of dedicated sure. horror fan. Sure. So it, sometimes I think, you know, I think horror movies today are, you know, kind of super predictable and all the scares are a little boring. But sometimes I have to say, maybe like, but maybe they're not mm-hmm. to people who don't watch horror movies all the time. Right. True. And there definitely is that aspect. But although I will say that there are some where... You can't help but recognize yeah. that something is that of what they're doing. Uh, at this point, Blackburn has this weird kind of change of heart and reveals that he didn't actually give Anne the drug. The drug was not, in fact, in the in the whisk in the in the whiskey that he gave her, and the lie that he was telling her was making her believe that she was that she was dosed. Hmm. And he still took it. He still absolutely yeah. took it, but she didn't. And so that also still kind of reinforces that. You don't have to take the drug to experience these things that are happening. You just have to be around someone yeah, who has. Yeah, it sort of turns the person into a beacon, but once exactly. the beacon's lit, There's no Gondor's called for aid. <laughs> yes. So he's still an asshole, but seemingly a little bit less of one, because mm-hmm. he didn't just drug her without her knowing, give her some H.P. Lovecraft roofies, and no thank you. Uh, so they decide to go, now that they know where Chamber 5 is, they decide to go to the CIA lab out in the desert and try and shut this signal off. It's a bold move. I don't, I'm not entirely certain why they make some of the choices that they make. Yeah, I, I, instead of just driving until he came down? I, yeah. But, okay. So now we go back to the CIA tape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again. Uh, there's another corpse on the table. The doctor's ready to harvest. They're the raiders. They're harvesting some more brain juice, and as he's like messing with the brain, he gets zapped. Like there's an obvious like he gets electric electrically zapped, hmm. and they at least mention the ridiculousness of 
a core of a dead brain having enough electric electric electrical pulse to be able to actually zap you. Um, they're like, wait a minute, no, that's it's a corpse. It doesn't do yeah. that. Like, in which uh, while I was sitting there watching the movie, going, yeah. no, it's a corpse. It doesn't do that. So that was nice. Uh, they at least, uh, they, they test the electrical conductivity of the corpse brain and it appears as though it's, it's not directly stated, but from the, what you can see of the, the, the corpse, it looks like it's actually patient 14 from before. The tests show that the beta waves in the brain are actually off the chart. Like it shows even a live, even a living normal brain has a certain mm-hmm. level of, of kind of giving off beta wave. And this brain is apparently giving off like 12 times the normal, the normal signal. At this point, the corpse comes back to life, shrieking, and Gray reaches up and grabs the doctor by the throat. And then we cut back to the normal. Okay. Because, you know, back to the show. Exposition. Yeah. And it's, it's that very, very, yeah. very immediate transitions. So Blackburn's getting worse, uh, but they get to the site, and they go with the John Carpenter solution. If it's bad, burn it. Burn it. It's very, it's very much like I'm thinking. Oh, the thing, excellent. Yeah, I mean that's lo- but that's Lovecraft 101. <laughs> it's true. You know, I found this mysterious thing. Set it on. Set fire. it on fire. Absolutely. Uh, Blackburn grabs a pistol from the car uh, without Anne noticing. Surely this will not become important later. I'm, I'm certain Absolutely. it won't. And he, and he does that whole, like, looks dire- looking directly at the camera. Like, he's mean-mugging you in the audience going, I got this pistol. Now you can see it. <laughs> Which was weird. But, so, they, they're in the CIA lab finally. We're in Chamber 5. And much like James's house, everything was left exactly as it was. Now, this is probably the most unrealistic thing in the movie to me. I mean, as you do with your secret government lab. Exactly. If the CIA scraps a project, they don't leave incriminating evidence behind. This place would have had a thermal cleaning after the, after the, the, after the experiment went south. There would not be medical reports and literally incriminating evidence about these secret projects on the American people. Just left Just there, left behind. Outside... Yeah. Where any, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which was it, it was it's so strange this that kind of this this part of the film, um, especially as we as we head into the kind of the climax of the yeah. film and, and, and into that things get real things happen real fast. There's a lot of slow burn throughout mm-hmm. the first part, the first hour of the movie, hour and a half or hour and mm-hmm. ten minutes, and the last twenty minutes are are. Very very fast. It's a very quick ramp. Uh, so she's so Anne's going through the through the, the 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 CIA facility and comes to what she what we find as the source of the signal, the source of the broadcast. Mm-hmm. And there's this weird iron lung looking kind of machine that is pulsing with a red light, almost as though this machine itself has the heart of the facility. Ah, uh, uh, we see what we did there. So, and there's also, like, a heartbeat sound going, <laughs> like, you could, you could hear it, there's that thump, thump, thump. What about, how does this place still have power? I mean, the, these experiments, have, these experiments were, were, were cut, were curtailed 50 years ago? You figure there's, there's a, the budget oversight office, somebody yeah. would be like, this, pa- this place is using an insane amount of power. Let's shut that down. 
so she's she's looking at this kind of there's a little port window on this iron long looking okay. thing and so she go gets down to look through it and boo creepy face boo scare and it's the same Callie creepy face from before okay. and now we see that there we hear that there's something coming down the hall toward them there's mm-hmm. something something is, is literally coming and as it gets closer Blackburn is just getting worse like his yeah. condition he's mm-hmm. back deteriorating bleeding from orifices and it's it's unpleasant and he starts seizing kind of on the ground and as he's mm-hmm. kind of writhing on the ground he reaches back and grabs the pistol and he's like oh so that's what that that's what the magic pistol was for not to turn on Anne but to blow himself away mm-hmm. with <laughs> Nothing more than a sorry, Anne. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like I said, a lot happens in the last twenty minutes of this film. So he blows his brains out. Danger's not over yet. the The creature is banging on the other side of the door. Anne takes a page from the Evil Within and hides in a locker. And <laughs> she. The, the, the creature kind of makes its way into the room and it's moving around and it it finds her in the locker and rips the locker door open and she so she runs out of the locker and out of the out of the room down the hall and ultimately she finds the gas can that they brought mm-hmm. so now she can because they, they set the gas can down a ways back and kept on going for some reason she finds the gas can now she can now she can take the fight to whatever may happen to this be there creature and <laughs> now here we get the clearest image of what's following her. We finally get a shot of the creature, which is it's a twisted humanoid form that looks uh it looks pretty damn creepy. Uh it's very it's twisted and like fingers elongated, which is kind of where I had that that slenderman kind of kind of vibe yeah. from before like it's but it so the fingers and the arms elongated, but its head was kind of weird. It reminded me a lot of some of the creature designs from Silent Hill. Okay. Right? I'm on board. And so she runs away from it back toward the transmitter room, sets the iron lung thing on fire. It blows up, and now everything's quiet. She goes out the... Finally, you know, after a minute making sure nothing is there, she opens the door, and there is, on the ground, is the remains of the creature. That was fought, that was following after her, and now we get to know what happened to James because it is wearing James's clothes. Ah. So the thing that was following her was trying to get her attention, trying to, to get, trying to get to her mm-hmm. was her was the very person that she was going after. Um, something I noticed at this point, like it had been in the back of my mind the whole time, but it didn't really until she left the facility. Her flashlight was green for some reason. Hmm. Like the 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 like there was like a, a color filter on the end of the flashlight that was that was very it was green. I don't. It's an odd choice. Like it's a it's a neat. It makes the green the green fil, green light filter makes for a really interesting scene cho- scene choices. Um, because it kind of it bays kind of everything in almost a corpse light, which has its own kind of effects on how you perceive things and how you are going to feel about a scene. It's not something I've ever heard used. I know they use red light filtration to preserve night vision. So mm-hmm. maybe they do that with green shift as well. It could be. Or it might just be they wanted that green light 
feel without shelling out for night vision or right. CGI green tinting. Because yeah. that is one thing about this. Um, I don't know that there was much in the way of CGI in this movie. They did, I think they did it was a lot of Mostly practical, practical. It With not showing a lot, mm-hmm. it would make more sense yeah. that they were... If it was practical, because like, that's, I would say, that's a way to conceal a lot yeah. of, okay, we need this to be a cheap build that needs to be quick. Right. Sins. I would say probably those 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 creepy, the really, really creepy reveals of, like, the contorted yeah. faces and everything is probably a CG, probably a CG effect. Um, but, so she's out in the desert, and everything's kind of calming down, and sunrise comes up real fast. Like, that's a real, real quick sunrise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she finds herself in the sheriff's office same sheriff's office where Rennie was being questioned at the very, very beginning of the film. And something that, that stood out to me that also stood out to me at the very beginning, but not for the same reason. There are all of these posters in the back of this interrogation room that are the very obvious drugs are bad. Yeah. Posters, <laughs> which given the whole point of the movie is kind of funny, but, um, yeah, the drugs are bad posters are super obvious. And we end the film with a very Lovecraft Stephen King kind of ending. She's in the sheriff's office. We obviously like I said that we see the opening segment where Rennie was questioned. The her editor comes to see her, kind of giving her some comfort, saying, Hey, it's gonna be okay. Mm-hmm. And it takes a strange turn when the editor asks if she ever if she ever found Rennie. She's obviously she found James. James mm-hmm. was the creature. Rennie disappeared too. You quite literally hit that, and they were never heard from again, kind of thing. And at this point, st- playing over the intercom in the police station is the Lonely Traveler music. Broadcast. The broadcast mm-hmm. starts playing again. Anne freaks out, saying, "Oh, you know, shut it off, shut it off, shut it off," and she turns around. And we get a boo scare of the editor's face transformed like James's was mm-hmm. in the very beginning. This was not done nearly as well the second time. But the movie ends with the lost was what the actual lost footage of the CIA tape. They had they had been able to repair the lost mm-hmm. thirty-five minutes. And it we reveal the identity of patient eleven, the very first guy we mm-hmm. saw, as Thomas Blackburn. The Blackburn was the original, the one of the original test subjects for this program, and they have him strapped up to an electroshock machine to wipe his memory of before they just because it was the we're done with this we're done with this guy clean you know clean up is not clean up is not is not is not our is not our problem wipe his memory let him go hmm. and kind of that's how we end with that with kind of with that reveal that Blackburn had had been part of this whole thing this entire time uh whether or not he knew it and he was just kind of getting flashes of it as things mm-hmm. happened again but then, then that's just kind of we just kind of end there like i said the i th- i feel like this film as i said had a lot of potential that a lot of neat concepts yeah that yeah, they could have run yeah you mentioned a lot of things that seem like cool ideas mm-hmm. but it, it sounds like you do, you don't think they strung them together quite no because well I, enough. To... I think I feel like I feel like each of the three kind of timelines, mm-hmm. the three the three stories that they had mashed together could have been interesting enough films on their own. Like I I think it would have been really neat to have to have had a film that kind of that claustrophobic the thing style in the bunker with the original CIA experiments and everything going wrong. 
you know, hounds of Tendalos jumping through the corners. Like that, that could have been really yeah, neat. Yeah, like that, like that has a feel almost like you know we've mentioned creepy pastas a couple of times. Right. The idea of like a Russian sleep experiment movie. Yes. Yes. Um, the the story of what happens with James and Rennie, or specifically if the story was told from Rennie's perspective of now he's been taken into the ether and yeah. dealing with like that that has an entirely different kind of storyline, kind of like different kind of movie that it could have been. Mm-hmm. That also could have been interesting. But jumbling them all together yeah. made it a little disjointed and it was a little too busy. You know what else this really rings a bell on me for? Hmm. Season one of Stranger Things. Yes. Yes. Um, I can definitely see that. And that actually, Stranger Things, especially when talking about with Rennie getting pulled in, I almost said into the upside down. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, like, it's absolutely is that, is that kind of case. An interesting note that I found in, uh, you know, God bless IMDb's trivia section. Apparently this, the original, uh, the original incarnation of this script was supposed to be, and that was supposed to be one of the original ideas for... Uwe Boll's Alone in the Dark. Really? The worst movie I have ever seen. It's up there. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Alone in the Dark was terrible. Don't, I mean, don't even bother. I mean, it sounds like this would have been better than Alone it, in the it Dark. It would have. It absolutely would have. But yeah. No. It was it tended to be the first draft of his adaptation of Alone in the Dark. Hmm. <laughs> well, that's something. Alright. So so yeah, that's that's Banshee Chapter. Um I don't know where necessarily the title comes from. Yeah, because I didn't hear anything about Banshees in there. No. Uh there is a part earlier on in one of the cuts with Josh, I think in the opening kind of bits, mm-hmm. where it he mentions he says something something along the lines of like, yeah, that's the title. They're they're asked they're asking him about what like what you would see beyond the veil kind of mm-hmm. a thing. And he kind of coyly responds of like, yeah, well, well, that's actually the title. That's actually the title of the chapter. And so that, but that's the only reference to the title of the film hmm. throughout the whole thing. So I'm not entirely certain of where that necessarily comes in, but overall, like I think had I not been analyzing this and kind of taking notes on it as I was watching, I probably would. I probably would have enjoyed might, it. Might have just been an to, okay ride. Might have just just to kind of sit back and and you know mm. enjoy a an, an attempt on a Lovecraft story. I think it could have been interesting. I'm usually always up for for Lovecraft adaptation. Yeah. No, know. absolutely. Which uh, might be a hint for future ref for for future episodes. Just so we're clear. <laughs> We 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 made we made uh, we made jump down that particular uh, that particular shagath hole at some point. It might happen. So uh, having summarized those movies, you know I don't I don't have a lot to say more about the found footage genre. It is what it is. I think I think it's unique. I, I think the existence of the genre as a whole is really just a result of the Blair Witch Project hitting at the right time and mm-hmm. blowing up like it did. But it has some interesting elements, and there's some interesting potential there. Yeah, no, absolutely, and like we, we kind of touched on it before. Of this is a these films are really really cheap to make. I mean, for films, right? As as, com- as compared comparative to, to to you know more 
sort of polished looking. Or even other independent films, like other indie films, that are going to have budgets of $750,000, a couple million dollars. I mean, these, uh, like we said... Blair, the Blair Witch Project was 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 made on was, sixty grand. Sixty thousand was the estimated on it, which is ridiculously cheap, and so which is both its blessing and its curse. the The big production houses are looking at, hey, Ike, we can turn some, we can turn a lot of quick cash by just throwing a little bit of money at it, and then things end up being kind of lazy and dull, or you get indep- more independent filmmakers who can't necessarily bring up the kind of capital that they would need for a grander vision they can kind of cut their teeth on this yeah on this I, I, it's got its place in horror absolutely and you know i i'm not upset that it exists no. i wish that there was more variety away from found footage but yeah I, you know that it's it's a passing trend and i think it's on the way out more yeah. i think we're moving much more into that like james wan style sure sure and i think i think we'll see I think that the genre has left its mark enough on filmmaking and on on horror as a, as a, as a whole, so we'll see aspects of it forever. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be a fixture in horror ad mm-hmm. nauseum. I just like to see it not be every other horror movie sure. that got made. Sure. Um, but yeah, no. I think I think we're we're definitely we're definitely moving beyond that into a new kind of a new era. But filmmaking. On that note, uh, I will reach behind me to my DVD case. Oh, yes. Uh, and we're going to talk about a few picks that are good examples of the genre for the interested. You know, if you happen to think that found footage sounds interesting, mm-hmm. dis- despite our conversation about it, um, and want to go into a little di- bit of a deeper dive, here are some good picks. And uh, these don't necessarily represent movies that we like. They're re- movies that we think you might enjoy that really hit the core of the genre that that's what this section is about first i'm going to talk about uh we've already mentioned it briefly paranormal activity yeah you you can't you can't not talk about that it was another big cultural relevant hit that caused a lot of ripples Mm -hmm. and it's a movie that i liked yeah absolutely Um, it's a movie that Kind of gradually got worse and worse the more sequels that came out. Oh yeah, it. the sequels. Ooh, but uh, there were there were some genuinely <laughs> scary Mandarin. moments. Uh, um, I didn't even hear that. Uh, I think there were some gen- there were some genuinely scary moments in that, and it creeped me out. I, I, it. I think it moves a little slowly, but it manages to build tension really well, and it mm-hmm. uses the idea of just using the different camera feeds in the house sure. as the found footage is a neat idea that I think works really well. Yeah. Again, mm-hmm. if it had ended a little bit before Sure. It did. I Honestly, I think even if you stopped at the trilogy, it could be... No, I meant just the, the first movie. Oh, the, the actual first ending of the yeah. first movie. I mean, which ending? Right? Yeah. So next I want to talk about The Last Exorcism, which is another film I actually genuinely like. Hmm. Um, but I think it is very much on the back of the main the, the main character. Yeah. Um, the idea of this exor- pseudo charlatan exorcist who has really lost his faith, but is continuing to do it as a career, and then it finds something genuinely supernatural, mm-hmm. and it's done as like this is a you know a video record of his final exorcism, and he's retiring, and he's this sort of famous person. Right. Um. So the story's very simple. 
but I think that the the lead actor really carries the movie. So if you're into found footage, if you're into particularly like exorcism horror and possession horror, it's a good safe bet. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about The Sacrament, which is a relatively recent movie. I want to say Ty West, but I could be wrong. I didn't double check that. I don't know. But it is basically the idea of some people have somebody got a note from a compound calling for help and of the family member of somebody at this compound is going down to try to find their relative and then they a vice like i think they actually use the vice logos hmm. like a vice camera crew goes with them and it is basically the story of the jonestown massacre as a found footage documentary Ooh. It's got a ton of punch, and it's acted super well, and it is just wrenching. Hmm. Um, so it, it is it is a movie that I would definitely recommend, but if you have issues with suicide or anything like that, it might be a, a tough one to make through. Sure, sure. Um, another one I want to note is As Above, So Below. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, I'm, I'm particularly a fan of claustrophobic horror as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I, because I'm claustrophobic, so it's it's a horror genre that still affects me. Sure. Because um, you got to chase that dragon. Um, and yet I and yet I still don't watch giant spider movies. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but it, so it's it's these very claustrophobic take on on a found footage genre that starts as sort of a national treasure style like hunt for a map hidden in a behind a painting in a museum. And ends in this sort of descent into hell. Um, and there's a lot of neat, like, alchemical symbolism and a lot of, like, Dante Alighieri and interesting stuff. Why have I not seen this? Have you not? No. Oh, it's so good. Oh, I got to. I have uh, to. Yeah, it, there's, there's a very mythical bent to the whole thing. And it's, it's, it has its problems, but over, by and large, it is one of the few found footage recommendations that I will put out to any horror fan and say, if you like horror movies, you'll probably like this. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to touch on VHS. It's a borderline case with the, this sort of tapes existing in the universe. Right. But if you like anthology films and you want to branch into found footage, it's a good pick. Yeah. No. And I, I the, when when we first started talking about this about this uh, this category, VHS was one of the first ones that came to mind. Uh, just in that sense of not only does it have that you know that that home video kind of mm-hmm. aspect to it, but it is literally found footage. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it's, and it's like any anthology film, there are parts of it that are a little bit it's uneven, harder to get through, but, but I, I enjoyed them it's not bad. for what they were. Um, I'm also going to briefly touch on their watching, which is a comedy slanted found footage, uh, that is like, it's, it's a home renovation show <laughs> that's following this woman who bought a house that like in some weird village in Slovenia or something. Like you do. Where where a witch burning happened in the village, and then it gets into the supernatural stuff. But by and large, it's basically like some relatively likable characters and a genuine excuse for the camera to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny, and I like it. Um, so, so, oh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah. So the last one on my list is Rec. That is, you know, R-E-C. Right. Uh, which is... It is a it is a mashup of two genres I don't like. It is a found footage zombie movie, but it is a found footage zombie movie that I enjoy. Um, I, it's tight. 
and it's paced well, and it's shot well. By and large, not. Huh. Uh, you know, I haven't really loved a zombie movie since probably Dead Alive. Yeah, fair enough. They just, yeah, well, yeah, 28 days later. But overall, I'm not a fan of the genre. Okay. Oh, that's fair. Um, that's, we it, lear- we're learning things. It, it, has learning its, things. it has its high points, but overall, not my genre. Yeah. Um, but Wreck manages to be really tightly paced and do some really interesting things. And I think it works really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was remade in English as Quarantine. Quarantine. And it was not nearly no. as good. No. Um, yeah, originally it's a, it's a Spanish film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was Spanish language Spanish originally. Word. Yeah, then they then they did Quarantine and oof. I really wanted to like that. Like from the trailers, I really yeah. wanted to like it. Well, I mean, they showed you the whole movie in the trailers. They did. They did. <laughs> uh, so while we're kind of while we're in that section of like of of suggestions, and I don't really have a whole lot to 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 put into this because, like sure. I said, I don't really like the genre. I don't go out of my way to look for it. Yeah. But uh, one film that I had always meant to watch but never did, uh, I don't know if you are familiar with The, the Devil Inside. Uh, no. So, the, the Devil Inside, it was it's fairly recent, um, 2012. Basically, it's a woman gets, it's a possession film, mm-hmm. but it is also done in that kind of, found footage it's a direct pov kind of kind of story and it looked it looked interesting it had some interesting visuals as far as the trailers went and stills okay. uh but i i never watched it and now that we've done this and i've been thinking about it i might have to you, go you back. might have to go pick it up i might have to go back and check it out because i i love possession films I I really dig like the, especially even you know, even go back to that kind of that classic mm. with the Exorcist and everything, like that that that's that that kind of Catholic mythology kind of a thing is is really fascinating, and I what can I say I like demons. Yeah, well you know I hope it works out for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's one more I want to note. It's not found footage, but it's got that feel in a lot of ways. Um, it's a pure POV movie that came out a few years ago. The Elijah Wood fronted Maniac remake, mm-hmm. um, which I actually quite liked. I mean, it's sitting on my DVD shelf right now. Um, but if you want that that sort of POV feel and don't want to go full found footage, it's a good slasher. Yeah, yeah. So that's all I have for suggestions. Yeah. No. Like I said, I don't. I don't. Unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot to add to this particular topic. Right. Uh, next time in the lair, by Justin's suggestion, laugh and the world laughs with you. We're talking horror comedies. Oh, I'm so ready. Uh, if you want to hit us up with any comments or requests, uh, the email is thelayerofthebloodfreak at gmail.com. Our theme song is Halloween Again by the Zombie Dandies, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. All other audio is either self-generated or lifted from promotional materials. See you next time. Bye.